Welcome back to the Sharp Run Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. I'm Ashley Soppy, the creator and producer of this show. This show would not be possible without Rocky Talkies. Rocky Talkies are a backcountry radio designed by a small team of climbers in Denver, Colorado. These radios are extremely lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold. They have impressive battery life and solid range. They've got a new waterproof hand mic accessory, which allows you to stow your radio in a pack and keep communication right on your shoulder in heavy snow and water conditions. Make your adventures safer by purchasing a set of their radios. I take them with me on every backcountry outing and road trip, and these radios have saved my bacon on several occasions. If you like discounts, get 10% off by going to rockytalkie.com slash sharp end. Do you know the difference between feeling too hot to profusely sweating and then maybe not sweating at all anymore? Maybe your symptoms have progressed to cramping or even having some possible hallucinations. Do you know that all of these symptoms mean specific things? Did you know that heat illness is a spectrum of disorders due to increased body temperatures, and at one point you can no longer make a recovery in the field? On July 30th, 2022, Austin suffered a heat illness that could have cost him his life. He was climbing on the Olympic Peninsula with his two friends. The Olympic Peninsula juts out to the west of Seattle, Washington. They set out to climb the Brothers, which are the two highest mountains in that range that you can see from miles away. On this particular day, the Pacific Northwest experienced abnormally high temperatures pushing into the mid-90s with low humidity. Couple this with long exposure in the hot elements on an objective like this one, and well, it led Austin to hit the SOS button. Listen into this episode to hear more. I hope you enjoy. Uh, hey everyone, my name is Austin Anderson. Uh, I uh, live in uh, Seattle, Washington, um, and I'm around 28 years old. And Austin, what do you do for work? Uh, I work for one of the big tech companies in cybersecurity. Oh, so you can't say much more than that, can you? <laughs> I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. Oh, I don't want to die. <laughs> okay, great. And um, and so you have uh, you want to say thank you first, right? Well, sure. Well, let me let me set the set the scene a little bit so uh, to lay some context. But um, the story that we'll be talking about today takes place out in Seattle, Washington, in the summer of 2022, uh, where I was climbing uh, in the Olympics with a couple buddies of mine. Um, and uh, I have a bunch of folks in here who uh, who helped me make sure that I was okay after all this went down. And I'd like to just say thanks to um, some of those folks. Um, to start out with, the two people who had the biggest role in getting me down the mountain and making sure that I was okay were buddies Tim Wick uh, and Brian Lorman, who I actually met on this hike. Um, my, uh, my buddy James, I could not have uh, gotten back to civilization without him. Um, and uh, I want to have a huge shout out and thank you to the entire JSAR team. JSAR is uh, the search and rescue team, their private organization, uh, who ended up pulling me out of the backcountry. Um, the, the folks on that team were Jimmy Stewart, and Adam Bowling, uh, codenamed Moose, on the ground team. Uh, Matt Stewart and Tom Penley running comms uh, and um, the landing zone. Uh, I want to thank Detective Derek Allen, who uh, ran Incident Command that day and who corresponded with me on the inReach. Um, and I also want to th- say a huge shout out to the Whidbey Island Navy Search and Rescue Helicopter Team, who ended up pulling me out on a Blackhawk. Uh, thanks to Lieutenant Goldsmith uh, and Lieutenant Smith, who were pilots. Uh, as well as um, Thomas Molnar, who was a lead medic, making sure I was okay. Um, uh, and there's a couple other folks, and I, I don't remember their names, but thank you, everyone who helped make sure that uh, I made it out safe and sound. That's a lot of people. It takes a village. It takes a village, yeah. Well, I'm kind of eager to hear how how and why they pulled you out and from where. So you did mention that it was in Seattle, Washington, in the Olympics, right? Yes, absolutely. So this story takes place uh, at the end of July, uh, July 30th, uh, 2022, um, out in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington. So that's kind of the the, uh, the peninsula that, jumped, that juts out to the west of, of Seattle. Uh, there's a rainforest there. There's lots of cool mountains and lots of cool places to go climbing around. Um, this happened, um, and this is fairly relevant, this happened uh, at the very tail end of one of the biggest heat waves that the region had ever experienced. 
Uh, typically in the summer in Seattle, you know, it's 80 degrees, maybe 85 on a hot day. Very few people have air conditioning. Uh, but during this heat wave, it was in the 90s, mid to high 90s for a week straight. Um, Gosh, as an really Alaskan, I think I would melt. <laughs> <laughs> as someone originally from Minnesota, I basically melted. Um, although, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get into some learnings here and, and uh, why that might not have been the case. Um, but uh, me and my buddies, uh, Tim and James, decided to go climb the Brothers on the Olympic Peninsula. And if you've ever been in Seattle or in the area and looked out to the west across the water and seen the mountain range, the Brothers are the two highest mountains in that range. So you can see them from, you know, dozens of miles away. They're really prominent out there and a really cool objective to climb. Um, now, th the actual uh, climb itself, it's mostly a scramble, um, but it's a long one. It's one typically done in over the course of a couple of days. It's uh, 18 miles round trip with a, approximately 6,900 feet of vertical gain. Um, now we were, uh, we were in great shape last summer and we decided to do that in a single push. Um, so we, um, decided that, to start around. And that seemed, that seemed fair for, for the three of you guys. I mean, it was well in your ability level. You guys felt strong. So that 18 miles round trip in a day that didn't seem like a big deal. No, it, it was certainly on the higher end of what we had done together. Um, uh, but I had gotten back not too long ago from, you know, a three week expedition in Argentina to climb Aconcagua. You oh, know, I had run a marathon wow. earlier that year. Um, I was feeling in great shape and my buddies were were right there with me. So it was not overreaching uh, to try to do that in one day. So uh, we ended up starting off uh, from the trailhead here around 6 a.m. Um, where uh, we had a bit of an altercation at the trailhead, uh, which kind of set the, the mood of the day, you know, relating to someone trying to play uh, music on a Bluetooth speaker. Um, however, uh, so we, we ended up splitting up originally and um, we didn't start the day with really solid communication. And this plays in quite a bit later. Um, we were kind of isolated and, 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 and mad at each other, uh, me, James, and Tim. Um, because, now, because one of you, one of the three of you wanted to play music on a Bluetooth speaker, but the other folks, other part of the team members didn't didn't want that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay. you know, and, and we didn't necessarily handle the situation um, in, in the best way to, to keep teamwork strong at the beginning of the hike. Um, so we kind of set off um, individually. Um, but over the course of the next couple hours, uh, you know, when you're hiking into the Brothers, um, you end up going through about four miles of really gnarly bushwhacking along, um, uh, along a dry creek bed um, before you break off and head uh, up and into the actual scramble. Um, and so uh, we kind of individually went um, along this, this bushwhack, and it's not super fun, but uh, we met up with a guy named Brian right before we uh, decided to uh, you know, break off from the creek and move up into the climb. Um, and he seemed jovial enough, and you know, he asked if he could join us, and we said sure. Um, and at this point, we all uh, proceeded up the mountain, the four of us, uh, me, Tim, Brian, and James, um, as a group of four. Um, now by this point, it was, you know, maybe, uh, eight, 8 AM or so in the morning. It wasn't super hot yet. It was probably 80 degrees. Um, so, so warm, uh, for Seattle standards, but, but not oppressively hot to go hiking in. Um, but once we got out of the trees, um, you know, kind of about a mile away from the, uh, from the Creek, you are basically exposed for the entire rest of the day. Um, the brothers, uh, the, the, the route that we decided to take approaches from the South. Um, and given it was in the middle of the summer, you are in the sun the entire day. There's no trees, there's no shade. Um, and the surrounding ridges do not, um, cast any shade until very, very late in the day. So starting at around, uh, you know, eight 30 in the morning, we were in the sun for the rest of the day. Um, and as the temperature climbed, that is one of the reasons why this became a problem. Um, we ended up taking a break around 9.30 in the morning um, after climbing up about uh, about 3,800 feet or so. So we were, we were at about 4,500 feet. Um, and we took a break at the last water source before um, the, the scramble becomes much, uh, you know, becomes scree and you're, you're kind of going up this chute um, and the upper part of the mountain becomes you know, quite a bit more serious. Uh, and at this point, um, my buddy James decides to turn around. Um, he was feeling not so great that day. Um, you know, the heat was kind of getting to him. 
and uh, he made the decision to go back down the trail. You know, it was he was able to navigate uh, no problem um, and wait for us near the trailhead. Um, but myself, Brian, and Tim uh, decided that we were feeling good enough and we would continue onwards. Uh, I think this is the, the moment where I at least made the first critical mistake, um, which we'll talk about later in the lessons learned. But I didn't take the opportunity to assess how I was feeling um, deeply enough because I would have discovered that I too was feeling the heat quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we filled up on water um, and we decided to to continue up the trail. And from this point, it's like, I don't know, maybe 30 degrees um, average for the rest of um, for the rest of the scramble. Lots of scree. It takes a long time. Um, from uh, around 9.30, uh, when we were able to fill up our water and uh, when James turned around, um, uh, it took us uh, until around 1 p.m. to hit the summit. Um, but before we, uh, before we had gotten to the summit, maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes short of the summit, I started to feel odd, strange. Um, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but something just felt wrong. Um, like in your in your body or in your head? yeah yeah in in my body where um, you know I was uh, I wasn't necessarily necessarily feeling overheated but I wasn't feeling sweaty um, and um, I was feeling a maybe perhaps Aha. a little bit lightheaded. You weren't feeling overheated, but you weren't feeling sweaty. Let's just sting that one right there and put that on the back burner for a little bit later. We'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, parking lot, that one. Um, Yeah, and, you know, I I started to have a little bit of cramping uh, in my joints um, as we approached the summit. Now, the the summit of the brothers, um, you know, that that last, like, two or three hundred feet um, goes from a scree slope to to a a fairly significant, uh, you know, T4 uh, scramble with potentially some T5 moves. And when I'm referring to a T4 and T5, that's kind of the scale of, of technicality for um, hiking and scrambling, where, you know, anything, uh, you know, more than T5, anything more difficult than T5 is typically referred to as an alpine climb, requires a rope. And, you know, anything lower than like a T2 or T1 is considered just a hike. So kind of in that realm is, is where scrambling happens. And so this was uh, on the more technical end of scrambling. Um and that also becomes relevant to the moment. Uh, but we ended up making the summit around 1 p.m. The, at an elevation of about 6740 feet or something like that. It's not a super high mountain, but because you start at 700 feet, it's just an enormous vertical gain from the parking lot. Um, and when we reached the summit, I knew that there was something wrong. I had never experienced this before, but I was, you know, I was very lightheaded at that point. I was not sweating basically at all. Um, I had significant cramping to the point where I was having difficulty moving my, my legs, my knees and, and hips were kind of locking up. Um, and I did not have any appetite, um, and drinking water didn't seem to help. Um, and so I, I expressed to, to, uh, to Tim and to Brian at that point, I think that there's something wrong. I don't know what's wrong. I think I might just be too hot. Like when you, uh, when you, when you just said like drinking water didn't seem to help, like it, like you felt like you're your your thirst wasn't being quenched yeah exactly exactly where you know you're thirsty you take a drink of water you feel better um you know i wasn't really thirsty but i'd be drinking water and i would just not feel hydrated hydrated. right it's difficult to to articulate um but i knew that i needed to get out of the heat and it was becoming more urgent that i do so however we were uh more than three thousand feet vertically from any shade whatsoever, any water, any shelter. Um, and uh, that 3,000 feet, um, the top of it is quite technical, and um, you end up uh, on uh, scree slopes for a lot of that, and you can't move very quickly. So I knew that we were going to be in the sun for quite a bit longer at that point. And now, at the point we hit the summit, it was easily 95 degrees outside, very low humidity, very little wind, completely clear skies. And so we had been just baking in the sun for hours at that point with the prospect of hours more before we could find any relief. Um, and so I started to become quite concerned. Um, now, right off the top of the brothers, you have to kind of go down this chimney. There's a bit of a notch that you, you, you follow down to the scree slope. And it was at that point where I had my first you know, significant issue where um, you know, you're kind of applying uh, pressure on, on uh, both sides of this chimney as you, uh, kind of inch your way down. Uh, so I was pushing um, 
you know, uh, with both my arms and my legs kind of out to keep myself stable as I inched my way down this, at which point my legs locked up, uh, fully locked up. I could not move them for almost five minutes. Um, and so I was kind of straining with counter pressure in this, um, this chimney above, you know, perhaps a, a 40 or 50 foot vertical drop uh, onto a 30 degree uh, scree slope that went for thousands of feet down. Um, and so you know, I was, I was really lucky that I was able to, that my legs didn't give way. Uh, I really had no control over them at that point. Um, but um, I was able to regain some movement in my legs after several minutes um, and I was able to kind of move slowly down this, the chute and onto the scree slope, um, where, uh, we managed to get down about a thousand feet above this, um, uh, above that water source at, at 4,500 feet that, uh, had a little bit of a stream and there was a small amount of, of snow remaining there. Is that the same place snow. you took a break on yes. the way up? Yeah, exactly. Where, where yep, your that's... first friend left the group? Yep. Yep. Okay. Exactly. That's where we took that break. Okay. I mean, that was kind of, that was kind of my target. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a strong recollection, um, <laughs> of making it down that scree slope. Um, I know that, um, uh, I began, you know, kind of full body tingling and, and stumbling around and, and I was having a bit of a difficulty articulating myself and how I was feeling. Um, and even, you know, some, some, uh, kind of slight, you know, feeling like, like I was seeing things that, that weren't there or hearing things that weren't there. Um, and we got about a thousand feet above that, um, that water. And I was, I was in quite a bad way. Um, I knew that I had sustained some kind of heat injury in that it was uh, getting significantly worse, um, quickly at that point. Um, so, uh, uh, my buddies, uh, Tim and, and, uh, Brian, uh, Tim actually climbed all the way down to, uh, to that water source, grabbed a bunch of snow in his climbing helmet and brought it up to me and just started shoving it down my, uh, my neck while he was getting stung by bees in the process. Um, and they were just trying wow. to keep me cool. <laughs> <You're my laughs> hero. Yeah. Oh my gosh. These, these two guys were, were absolutely my heroes or I, I ran out of water, um, around that point. I, I carried about two liters of carrying capacity with me, which was just not enough, um, for that, um, for that big of a day and, and for that hot of a day. Um, and so they were, they were giving me water and they were giving me food and, you know, uh, at that point they were, they were kind of helping me down, um, and making sure that I was able to make my way down this steep scree slope. Um, uh, but we eventually made it down to that ice cave, um, around four 30 in the afternoon, um, which, uh, was about 10 hours, 10 and a half hours after we had set out. So at this point it was, it had already been quite a long day. Um, and so I was able to kind of huddle against the side of this remaining snow that was overhanging and creating shade. Um, you know, Brian and Tim were stuffing snow down my shirt and, and giving me very cold water to drink. Um, and so I, I just sat there for about 30 minutes trying to recover. Um, and after about 20, 25 minutes, uh, I came to the realization that I was not getting any better, uh, that cooling me down in the field was not, um, was not making me feel any better. And that indeed I, I had continued to feel worse. Um, at this point, it seemed like my, uh, my digestion was, was kind of going haywire. Um, and, uh, I, I knew that, that I needed more help. Um, and so after being in that ice cave for about, in that little snow cave for about a half an hour, I made the decision to hit the SOS on my Garmin inReach. Um, and, uh, and once we hit the SOS, we, we were trying to figure out, should we stay here? Should we continue down? Uh, and I made the decision to continue moving down, uh, continue going down the mountain. At this point, we were still seven miles from the trailhead. We were still uh, almost 4,000 feet above the trailhead. Um, and we knew that it would take an exceedingly long time for search, search and rescue to get to us. Um, you know, because I wasn't in, you know, didn't feel like I was in you know, immediate life-threatening danger. I didn't have any you know, gaping chest wounds or bleeding everywhere. Well, um, actually, I mean, you, you, <laughs> just because you didn't have an open femur fracture does not mean that you were not in extreme danger. I mean, heat illness is a, that, that's a really big deal, and it and um and you know we'll find out why later. But um, yeah, just because you don't have an open femur fracture, you're not bleeding out. Lots, a lot, a lot right now is going on with your body. Oh, absolutely. Right. And this was a totally new experience for me. So I didn't really, I couldn't really understand how severe the issue was at the time. 
Right, you're from uh, Seattle, Washington, or you're from, I mean, you're, you live in Seattle, Washington, you're not from there, but I mean, you, where you're from and where you live now, you know, you, you don't experience this type of heat. So it is hard. I can imagine it's hard for you to pinpoint what is going on with me. Right, right, right. And and we're going to talk about later in the lessons learned, you know, how, you know, at least how I came to the realization that that I needed more help in this kind of slow, progressive injury versus kind of a all at once, take a fall, now I need help. Um, but I made the decision at that point that we needed more help when I hit the SOS on my inReach. And so I, be, I began to correspond um, with uh, with Detective Derek Allen um, at the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office through my inReach, um, sharing details about you know how I was doing, you know what my how much water intake I had had, my electrolytes, what our plan was, where we were at, um, and we'll talk more about this again in the lessons learned. But uh, there was uh, we had some challenges communicating through that inreach due to the location of where we were at. But having made the decision to move downwards uh, down the mountain and try to meet the the search and rescue team on the way up, uh, we continued to move down. Now uh, the the section below this. Um, this water source, this little snow cave, um, between that and the creek bed the, that you follow all the way to the trailhead, is a bunch of blowdowns um, and an old fire, um, old trees that were fallen by fire, um, and it's just an absolute mess to get through in the best of times. Um, I think it took us. I think we were averaging like a half a mile per hour making our way down through here because at this point, you know, either Tim or Brian was, was holding me most of the time, guiding me up and over trees, you know, helping me when I needed to sit down and rest, you know, getting water for me, giving me snacks. I mean, I was, I was not self-sufficient at this point at all. And yet we were still making our way down these blowdowns and, and back down towards the trailhead and trying to meet the search, the search and rescue folks. Um, now, after another couple hours of this, probably around, uh, around uh, 8.45 or, or, or so in the evening, it started to get quite dark. Uh, we had made our way um, all the way down to the creek bed and we're trying to uh, progress towards the trailhead. Uh, we had just about lost the light uh, and I started to experience chest pain and difficulty breathing. Um, I, I knew that, that whatever had happened to my, my body at that point um, was, was now life-threatening. Um, and, um, after, you know, taking several more breaks, we eventually caught up with the, the ground team, the advanced team from search and rescue, uh, led by, uh, Jimmy Stewart and, uh, and Moose, uh, Adam Boeing. Um, and they gave me, they gave me food, they gave me water. They kind of assessed a situation. Were you able and, to and... eat that food? Were you able to, to, to stomach that and drink oh that Oh my gosh. Water? Moose gave me the absolute best beef jerky I've ever had. It's like the the tenderloin, whatever. Um, I still have been unable to find that. Moose, if you're listening to this, if you can tell me where to find that beef jerky. Uh, He's not going to tell you his secrets. It's probably uh, Moose. That's true. It's, it's probably it's, Moose it's, yeah, jerky. It probably is. Um, you know, eating, eating Moose, kind, if you're I listening guess. to this, you send me some of that. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I was, I was amazed by how easy it was to, to eat that stuff. And, and and um, yeah, I don't know what it was about uh, the aid they gave, but it, it, it made me feel quite a bit uh, quite a bit better. And so I didn't immediately tell them that I was experiencing this these more advanced uh, the symptoms chest pains, chest pains, and, and difficulty breathing. Why and I presented myself. Them? I'm sorry. Why did you not tell them? Um, I that's a good question. Um, perhaps it was um, you know I didn't want at that point to complicate the rescue. You know, I, I felt like I was safe now that they were there and they were going to make things be okay. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't feeling those symptoms as strongly after we had taken a break and eaten some food. Um, and so I, I didn't mention it immediately, uh, okay. I don't believe. Um, but we started moving back towards the trailhead. You know, they, they assessed me and, and, and figured that I could walk out. Um, and, you know, we were in a, a dense forest at that point, so there was really no other option then than that or a litter. Um, and so we, we began walking out towards the trailhead. Um, and after about another hour or two, um, the chest pain had gotten worse. The difficulty breathing had gotten worse. Um, I, uh, I was no longer confident that I was going to be able to walk out of there um, on my own. Um, and so I shared as such um, with the search and rescue team. 
Um, uh, and uh, as we as we approached maybe two miles or so from the trailhead, you you arrive at what's known as Lena Lake. It's a beautiful backcountry uh, lake. Lots of people love camping there. There is a disco party going on that night. Um, and so uh, when I had shared that I was I was having these these symptoms and and you know my my chest was hurting and I I really was having some trouble breathing. Um, they basically immediately made the decision that uh, I was no longer walking out and they were going to call a helicopter. Um, you know, chest pain is, is no joke. If you stop breathing in the backcountry, you're, you're in a bad way. And how did that um, make, how did that make you feel when they made that call for you? I was, I was relieved. Um, like, I don't know if I would have made that call myself. In fact, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have made that call myself. Well, you didn't um, having... when you were first feeling those pains. Yeah, you didn't. So, but they were getting worse. So, I'm just wondering, yeah, about how that made you feel. Just... Oh, yeah, I, I, I felt relieved because it felt like the the grownups had taken over the situation and they had made the decision, uh, and that decision was going to help me. Um, and you know, it's it is concerning and it is worrying to to be unable to breathe easily. Um, and uh, I I fully agreed that that they knew what they were doing and that they were going to get me out okay. Um, and so they, they, they called the helicopter. Uh, now we're in the Olympic Peninsula. And so there's, there's really two different organizations who can respond to a helicopter call like that. Um, oftentimes it could be the Coast Guard, um, who operates up and down, um, the Puget Sound area, uh, or it can be, um, the, uh, the, the Navy who operates out of Whidbey Island in the kind of the Northeast, uh, part of that peninsula. Um, and it ended up being the case that, uh, that the Navy responded to that call, um, so the, the SAR guys at this point, there was four of them. They sat me down they gave me a bunch of water and electrolytes, um, kind of on this little rock overlooking this beautiful backcountry lake, Lena Lake. Um, and we waited for the helicopter. Um, at this point, uh, my buddies, Tim and Brian had, uh, had made the decision that they were, I mean, they had to, they had to drive out. They had to walk out. Um, their cars were here. They had really no other option. Uh, as fun as riding in a helicopter is. Uh, and so at this point, they they departed and left me in the capable hands um, of the uh, Jefferson County Search and Rescue. Um, and we waited. It was it was like an hour um, before the helicopter arrived. Um, <laughs> but I will never forget uh, that helicopter arriving um, to Lena Lake. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, it's this beautiful, you know, starlit night. There's not a cloud in the sky. It's like 1 a.m. at this point. Um, there's no sound at all. There's probably a hundred people camping around this lake and they've all gone to bed. So it's nice and quiet. There's no lights at all. Um, you know, and then, you know, you start to hear the sound of the distance, you know, the woofing of, of the, the propeller blades. Um, and then, you know, before you know it, there's this gigantic machine full of lights scanning the lake, um, and, and causing a huge up downdraft, um, you know, blowing leaves and, and small trees all over the place. Um, and it, it, it circled the lake a couple of times, uh, and I'm sure that, that the folks who had been uh, out cajoling that night and, and, and partying had quite the scare when they woke up to, you know, a, a gigantic Blackhawk helicopter. Oh, no, like. no, no doubt they did. <laughs> what, what, were, what were some of the things that that um, SAR was doing on the ground with you in, within that one hour of, of waiting for the heli to arrive? What were they doing for you to sort of manage your chest pain and your shortness of breath? Oh, absolutely. They, uh, I mean, they were, they were, uh, constantly going through, um, uh, going through health checks with me, Your vitals, yeah, yeah. my, my vital signs, um, uh, you know, checking to checking my level of consciousness, um, checking to make sure, you know, what level of, of chest pain you're experiencing, how would you describe it to me? You know, they were, um, uh, they were giving me, um, electrolytes and food and, um, had, uh, you know, taken my pack from me and, and just tried to make me as comfortable as possible. And, and we're talking with me the entire time. Yeah. They sound um, like amazing men. Oh my gosh. They are the absolute best. Uh, you know, I, I, I owe these guys, uh, I owe these guys my life in more ways than one as we'll, as we'll get to kind of near the conclusion of this story. Um, but the, uh, the helicopter arrived, um, uh, and, uh, Thomas Molnar, the lead medic, um, uh, you know, went down the, went down the cable. Now it's important to note, there's no place to land a helicopter at Lena Lake and this is old growth territory. So the trees are 200 feet tall. Uh, and so this helicopter hovered about 220 feet in the air above Lena Lake. And these guys went down uh, on the cable and they, you know, they strapped me onto a litter and they, uh, you know, asked me some questions. And, and at this point it was all kind of a blur. Um, but I knew that I was, I was going to the helicopter and I was, I was going to Seattle um, 
to a hospital. Um, but I remember that them strapped me to this litter that uh, <laughs> that um, uh, the, the, the manic uh, ended up clipping himself to the litter, um, basically sitting on top of me. Um, and then they, they uh, reeled me up on the cable, uh, essentially through the trees, uh, spinning in circles as we did into this like raw, uh, this roaring maw of this machine flying in the sky. Uh, just, just an, an incredible experience. But they pulled me in and they, they uh, you know, hooked me up to an IV. Uh, I imagine sticking an IV is challenging in the best of times, but doing so in the back of a moving helicopter, uh, you know, these guys are heroes. Um, they ended up flying me all the way back to Seattle to Harpeview Medical Center, where I ended up spending the next day or so uh, recovering and, and um, you know, receiving some medical treatment for the injuries that I had sustained. And what were those injuries that you sustained? <laughs> Do you tell Austin? Uh, I, I sustained a heat injury. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of indeterminate um, if it bordered on or if it, if it kind of cleared the bounds of being a heat stroke, but certainly uh, heat exhaustion and, and heat stress. And, and we'll talk a little bit about my understanding of, of how those things differ and, and, and how they felt different in the field. Um, but, um, but I, uh, yeah, was, was diagnosed with, with heat exhaustion and heat stress, um, you know, heat stroke potentially. Um, and you know, they, they performed a whole bunch of tests on me, a whole bunch of scans, uh, to try to figure out, you know, what was going on and what was going on with this chest pain. That's kind of strange. Um, and they, they performed a chest CT scan. Um, and, um, as a result of this chest CT scan, um, I was able to learn that um, I had undiagnosed thyroid cancer that was just sitting in there um, and had been uh, growing for years. And you would have um, had no idea if this event didn't occur. Oh my gosh, no! I was I was running marathons. Wow. I was I was climbing mountains in the Andes. I was doing these these giant days like the brothers. I, I had absolutely no symptoms and no idea that there was anything wrong. Um, but uh, as a result of this accident, this uh, situation leading to those scans, I was able to catch this super early, um, and am currently in the process of uh, of uh, uh, of, of uh, hopefully being cured of it. That that must have been some serious news when you're laying in the hospital bed and they're treating you for one thing, and then they say, "Oh, by the way, is now the best time <laughs> to tell you that you have this other life changing thing." Oh my goodness. Oh my. Well, so that would have been quite something. Um, thankfully, well, potentially thankfully, um, I didn't learn immediately uh, what it was. Um, so this is not the thyroid cancer podcast. This is the sharp end podcast, but the, the, this, this, this disease is very commonly discovered this way. It's, it's, you know, kind of an incidental finding from looking for something else. Um, and so they just found that there was something concerning, but they didn't quite know what it was. They hadn't done any definitive tests for it. So that they sent me home with uh, recommendations to follow up later. And so I, I followed up six months later and we made the actual discovery of, of what it was and, and what needed to happen. Okay. That makes sense. And so you're going to say sort of the differences that you think, you know, between the heat illnesses, heat exhaustion versus, you know, heat stroke, what, what would that, what those feelings were in your body? Oh, absolutely. And, and that's kind of uh, one of the, that moves us nicely into the lessons learned territory where like one of the biggest lessons that I learned as a result of this is, you know, listening to my body and identifying these more slow growing issues and injuries. Um, because, you know, a heat injury is a continuum, right? You can, you can go from totally healthy to dead on this, uh, on this spectrum of heat injury. Um, and the, the symptoms kind of build over time as your injury gets worse. Um, and uh, there is a threshold, um, where it becomes heat stroke, um, where it becomes life-threatening. Um, and, uh, that uh, essentially the, the, what I understand the difference between kind of the previous the types of heat injury up to heat stroke, where that line is, is you could no longer make a recovery in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, you require medical intervention. Um, the the kind of vicious cycle that has been building in your in your body can no longer be reversed through time and, and being cooled down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that that kind of felt and, and built up um, for me throughout the day is, you know, initially I felt totally great, right? Uh, you know, I was moving fast. I was having a you know, good time. I just met Brian and he seemed cool and we were chatting. Um, and the day you know, began warming up and I was drinking water, uh, and the, and started the, the way it started for me, 
um, was um, kind of lightheadedness, um, which I didn't I didn't attribute at the time to um, to the heat injury. I just felt, oh, maybe I should drink more water, or maybe I need to wear less clothing, or maybe I need to make some other adjustments to my system to make sure that that I'm you know in a, in a good environment. Um, but the, the, the telltale sign in the field, um, that I picked up on that, um, you can also pick up on is, is when you stop sweating, but Mm -hmm. it's hot, right? And and this is, this is why we, we, uh, said we'd circle back to this later, right? Like if it's hot, you should be sweating, especially if you're working hard, like when scrambling up a mountain. Um, so if you stop sweating, but still can tell that it's very hot outside, that is a signal that there's something wrong. Um, yep. And that you need to make some significant change to your environment uh, in order to um, kind of walk your way back from this progression of heat injury. Um, and now, you know, kind of uh, moving on from those earlier onset symptoms, um, the, the next major symptom that that uh, told me that there was something seriously wrong was was the cramping, um, which starts off as you know, oh, I just feel a little sore, maybe, to oh, I'm having difficulty fully extending my arm perhaps or you know maybe as i'm making a move uh, to move my right leg up to a hold or something you know maybe i just it, it kind of freezes halfway up and I'm, i can't quite be sure why i'm unable to move it up into that hold um so when your your, your body is kind of betraying you and, and you're feeling this kind of pain and cramping um and it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, plus uh, having those um those earlier symptoms like not sweating and and a little bit lightheadedness. Again, this is more of a signal um, that there's a heat injury occurring and that it's progressing. Uh, There's two things that I I heard you say that that sort of struck me as uh, more on the severe side. Um, One of those was, you know, rapidly deteriorating level of responsiveness. Like, you you know, you, you were saying that you didn't, you had trouble articulating your words. Um, and then another one, you said that you were, you were seeing and hearing things that may or may not have been there. That's delirium, right? So those are two, uh, symptoms of more on the heat stroke side of things. I'm not saying that you had that, but those are some things that we see in wilderness medicine with someone who who does have heat stroke. Absolutely. Right. And, and those happened, uh, you know, kind of after the cramping and after the, the the pause and sweating, and that was the next major milestone in that progression of heat injury towards heat stroke, is the the full body tingling. Right, that's not how your body should be reacting when you're hiking around in the mountains. Um, the delirium, um, yeah, the, the kind of decreasing level of consciousness as your body is is doing its best to you know shut down non critical systems to avoid overheating you. Um, and then the, you know, the, the final kind of um, symptom that I experienced um, on that progression towards heat stroke that um, solidified my understanding that I needed immediate assistance um, that we didn't currently have was when I wasn't getting better, even though I was, you know, I was in the shade, I was being stuffed with, with snow, you know, I um, was laying down for the most part and, and wasn't stressing my body at all. And I was really focused on recovering. Uh, and you know, over the course of a half an hour, not getting any better. You should get better. You should be able to cool down. You should uh, feel some relief. Um, but if things are not um, getting any better, even when you're you're ostensibly doing everything right, you know that's a you know that is a really important sign that you've crossed that threshold into that vicious cycle that you can no longer reverse in the field. Um, and you know, you know, kind of going into more of the lessons learned specifically around heat injury. Um, you know, one of the most important things that I learned as a result of this incident is um, how heat acclimatization works, right? Like when we, we're, we're climbers, right? When we think about acclimatization, we think about elevation, right? I need to, to climb high and sleep low. I need to spend a long period of time moving my way up the mountain in order for my body to be able to function at this higher altitude. Um, well, your body also has a similar physiological response to heat, where uh, if you uh, want to perform in a more extreme environment, uh, a hot environment, than you're perhaps accustomed to, uh, uh, you know, spending more time in the heat, working in the heat, and then sleeping in the cold, um, and really getting your body to adjust to you know, that new environment um, can make an enormous difference. That's in, a really good uh, point. Absolutely. 
you know, and one thing that I did wrong here is we had this heat wave for the past week. Uh, you know, Brian and Tim and James had all been out running in the heat. They had all been out hiking in the heat. They didn't have air conditioning, some of them. Um, whereas I had spent almost 100% of my time for that entire week inside in the air conditioning. So I had had zero exposure to that level of heat prior to jumping onto the brothers. And so my body was not acclimatized to being able to perform in that environment. Just in general, it's a good idea. And then rounding out kind of the heat injury stuff before we jump into some other things that I learned um, as, a, as a result of this, um, uh, goes into for this more slow onset kind of injury, right? I didn't break a bone and no, I couldn't get out. So I hit the SOS button. This was a slow progression. And especially one where I was kind of losing my awareness. Um, you know, I was not on it as much um, as the injury progressed. Uh, and my decision-making was more compromised, right? How do you make uh, the decision to call for more help when, you know, each incremental little time that you get worse doesn't feel life-threatening, but the accumulation uh, tends to. Uh, and for me, um, my uh, the judgment call that I made and that I, I feel very good about is when I did not get any better after um, spending time where I right. should be getting better. When your symptoms weren't improving, right? Right. You were trying uh, like, to, you, you were trying to manage the symptoms. You know, you sat there in that snow cave or that ice cave with, you know, out of the sun, drank lots of water, rested, and your symptoms still weren't improving. That was sort of, that was your red flag. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. If I don't have an expectation that I'm going to start to feel better and be able to move out of here on my own steam, then I need more help. Uh, and as it turns out, I was very glad that I called for that help. Me too. Um, and uh, you know moving on to uh, someone who was not immediately glad that I called for help um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, you know hitting the SOS on an inReach itself one of the lessons that I learned um, from this um, relates to who you have as your emergency contact in your inReach because when you hit the SOS button they get a message from Garmin saying your, uh, your person, this person has hit the SOS button um, and we are responding. And that's it. That's all they get. Uh, they're not pulled into any of the, the decision-making. There's no immediate follow-up to what's going on. It's just a notification. And the person who I had said as my emergency contact was my mom. Who lives <laughs> in Seattle or does she live still in Michigan? Who lives in Minnesota? Oh, Minnesota. So there's nothing that she could have done. And if you can imagine as a parent receiving a message, you know, your child is in immediate peril in the outdoors. Uh, that's it. There's no details of what's going on. There's no details of what they're doing to respond. They're just in trouble. Uh, that's not the kind of message that you want to get as a parent. Um, and so you know, I should have had my emergency contact be someone who was local, someone who, who uh, could have been more useful in, uh, you know, in an accident scenario like this. Uh, who may have been able to call people who could help in the local area instead of just causing them an immense amount of stress. I'm definitely going to do a bonus episode on what happens when you hit the SOS button because so many people don't know that, right? And who do you have as your emergency as your emergency contact in your in your uh, I guess your profile on your garmentinreach.com? You know, who who is that person? Are you going to freak them out, and are they going to be helpful in the response or not? Absolutely. And uh, I'd recommend definitely uh, to include there, you know, how that, uh, how to use that map feature of the, of the inReach um, to kind of aid in your emergency contact, being able to respond to the situation. Because uh, my mom didn't get a location um, or any details about, you know, exactly where I was. Um, she may have gotten like GPS coordinates, which, you know, weren't particularly useful to her. But Garmin has, you know, a map that your device publishes to um, on an ongoing basis that she already had access to. Um, so, you know, educating folks around how to set that thing up, how to give people access to it, and then how to use that um, in the event of emergency would be a great addition to that mini episode. So you hit the SOS button, your mom gets this this notification, and then what happens? <laughs> uh, she starts sending me messages, right? She knows uh, how to contact me on my inReach, so I'm I'm in a bad way, first of all, and I'm trying to communicate with the incident response, search and rescue folks tell them where I'm at, how I'm doing, what we're doing, where to find me. And then I'm also getting messages from my mom. Oh my gosh, where are you? I heard that you're having a problem. Tell me what's going on. Are you okay? 
you know, totally understandable from, uh, from her perspective. Of course. Um, but uh, kind of going back to uh, you know, making sure that you have uh, you know, the, the person you have as your emergency contact uh, in the event of emergency, it is valuable to contact them. Um, I think makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. I, w- I would have much preferred to tell her about this after the fact. Right. <laughs> maybe not from the hospital, but maybe when you're at home, oh, warm, yes. cozy, drinking a hot chocolate. <laughs> or cold chocolate, as it were. Or cold chocolate, as it were. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Point. Touche. <laughs> uh, some other things that um, that I learned as a result of this. Now, I, I spend a lot of time, I'm out in the Pacific Northwest. The, the weather changes a lot. And so I spend a lot of time, you know, looking up resources on, you know, what the weather's going to do in what area, at what point in the day, um, you know, especially in the winter when uh, you know, avalanches are, are concerned. But um, one thing that I didn't really factor into my decision making um, was was the heat, right? When I'm looking at weather, when a lot of, uh, you know, hikers and climbers are looking at weather, you know, we're looking at uh, precipitation, right? Is it going to storm today? Is it going to snow today? Is the wind going to be really uh, blasting today? Is there going to be something that's going to make it difficult for me to see? Um, but one thing that I don't typically uh, look at in terms of decision making on my adventures is is the temperature, right? I'll just look at, oh, it's going to be you know, between 40 and 60 today, oh, I'll, I'll bring this set of clothes. That's kind of the extent of my decision-making um, for, uh, as it relates to the temperature. Uh, but after this, uh, you know, the temperature and, and the humidity and, and the, the overall condition of the day, including the, the cloud cover, um, plays a, a much bigger role in, in my assessment of uh, a particular outing before I go, right? I would, I would definitely think twice about doing another big day like that uh, in a super hot environment, given the uh, the experience that I've had. Um, and some other, uh, things to consider as it relates to that trip planning in the weather that I didn't think about ahead of time was, um, you know, where you're climbing, is there going to be a lot of tree cover is, or are you going to be mostly exposed? And how long Um, will you be exposed for, depending on how fast you hike, right? Exactly. I mean, you guys were exposed for so many hours in just grueling sun. Yeah, we were in the sun for 18 hours. 18 um, hours. And and the other piece of that, that I mentioned earlier is that the Brothers is a south-facing climb. Yep. And so, you know, if you're on the north face of a mountain, you get you know quite a bit of relief from the sun in the early morning and the late afternoon. Um, whereas on a south-facing slope, you are in the sun the entire day. A lot All of us day. backcountry skiers and, and, and winter climbers, you know, we look at that slope aspect um, you know, quite a bit as it relates to, you know, the impact sun has on avalanches. But, you know, it's absolutely relevant to people who recreate in the summer as well, um, you know, especially as it relates to these more extremes of, of temperature and environment. Did you guys get sunburned? Uh, no, no, we didn't. At least I didn't. Um, you know, whether or not this was, was the responsible choice kind of uh, remains to be seen. But um, I typically prefer to be fully covered um, during my, my adventure. So I was wearing, you know, a very lightweight, light colored sun hoodie. I was wearing very lightweight pants. Um, you know, I had sunglasses and a buff. Um, and so I didn't really have much, uh, exposure to the sun, um, on my skin throughout the day, um, which helped, um, you know, with sunburn, but may have also contributed to, you know, my body's ability to regulate its temperature because I was, you know, there's no skin exposed. It's harder for your body to sweat and remove moisture and heat. I think that can definitely be argued both ways. I I also hike with very light hiking pants and a very light beady sun, sun hoodie uh, and then I always wear a hat and then I, I'm obsessed with zinc oxide. I will put zinc all over my face. I don't care if I look like a snowman. Um, I wear tons of zinc on my lips, my nose and on my cheekbones, like anything that's not, anything that's exposed to the sun, I'll, I'll cover in zinc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, especially on like expeditions or, or big long days, chemical sunscreen just does not have the staying power that something like zinc oxide or titanium oxide sunscreen does. So absolutely, I co-sign uh, slathering with zinc. The, the, snow, uh, the, the snowman look on a hot day is, uh, is definitely <laughs> one to go for. Some of the last things I want to close out my, uh, my lessons learned uh, with uh, is around partner selection. Now, this is an interesting one in the context of, of my experience, because one of the most important people who helped me get down this mountain and who is now one of my best climbing partners was someone that I met on that day, Brian. Um, so I, I didn't have the opportunity to assess him as a partner beforehand and, and just, you know, the luckiest man in the world that he ended up being there and we ended up joining, joining up to climb this thing and eventually helped me down. Um, but in terms of, of, uh, you know, definitely 
picking people to go out on these bigger days um, who you'll know will stick with you when you're in distress. It would have been super easy for, for Brian and, and for Tim to keep hiking down the mountain ahead of me, right? You know, I'm not bleeding anywhere. I don't look like I'm in immediate life-threatening peril. I'm just kind of slow, right? Oh, we'll see you at the, at the water source. But they didn't. They stuck with me the entire time. You know, even Brian, who I just met that day, he was with me every single step of the day, all the way to when I got flown off on the helicopter. Um, and so, you know, picking with people who, you know, you may not have to be like, hey, I need you to stay with me. I'm having a hard time. Uh, you know, I didn't really have the presence of mind to say things like that at that point, but they knew to stick with me. And that made a big difference in, in my ability to be okay here. Um, another piece is, you know, kind of what I, I mentioned earlier, where that point in the day, earlier in the day, when my buddy James had... Uh, turned around. You know, he was not feeling great. The sun was kind of getting to him. You know, uh, listening to your partners when they're saying that they're feeling unwell, or you know, maybe they, uh, maybe in the context of a backpacking trip where you know they drank the water and now they're feeling all icky, um, or you know, the, in in James's case where he was feeling the sun was getting to him. That's a great opportunity to look inward and listen to your own body and see if if you're experiencing any of the same things. If I had uh, been more reflective, if I had paid more attention to myself at that point, I likely would have recognized some of the same things that James called out that caused him to turn around. Yeah. So just, so checking in with yourself and being honest with where you're at. Absolutely. And then being comfortable with your partners in communicating that. Uh, you oh know, yes. One of the, the vulnerability. Oh yes. Absolutely. And you know, it's, especially when it, when it comes to reaching the top of a mountain, right? We've all been there. We've all been close. Um, but maybe we have an equipment issue. Maybe we don't have the fitness. Maybe we're just having a bad day, but we don't want to turn around. We don't want to disappoint our friends or we don't want to disappoint ourselves. But in this case, I absolutely should have turned around before we hit the summit. I absolutely should have been more communicative with my climbing partners about how I was feeling and my concerns about what that would mean getting back. Um, and again, thank goodness for my buddies, Tim, James, and Brian, JSAR with Jimmy, Adam, Matt, and Tom, the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, and the Whidbey Island Naval Helicopter Crew. If you've learned something from this episode, or really any of the Sharpened episodes, please tell a friend or family member. Spread the word about my podcast. Help me get these stories out into our outdoor community so we can all minimize future outdoor accidents. And don't forget, you can donate to the show via PayPal or by becoming a Patreon member. There are new monthly bonus episodes coming to Patreon members soon. If you've been begging for more episodes, you finally got what you asked for. More content, more stories, more outdoor lessons to learn from. Thank you to Rocky Talkies for sponsoring this podcast time and time again. And thank you to the American Alpine Club for believing in my podcast mission. The American Alpine Club podcast is your guide to the climbing community. They're digging into the ideas that shape climbing. From trends in climbing accidents to place-based connections, or navigating grief and mental health and mountain sports. They're sharing stories from the pillars of our climbing community. The hot advocacy issues, the philosophies behind Ascend, and the motivations and methods of community change makers. You can find the American Alpine Club podcast on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcast. Subscribe today. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.